From 11FS, I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you, TSB could have up to £150 million in debt after its IT systems meltdown, more regulator action on unfair fees, and Goldman Sachs is getting into EDM. No, really. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. My name is Sarah Koshansky from 11FS and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host David Breer. How are you doing today, David? Super good. Really, really, really busy week and I'm travelling off to the US on Sunday, so I'm absolutely in the doghouse by not being at home too much. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, if you're listening, Sarah, I apologise. <laughs> So before we start the show, we should say that tickets for our live FinTech Insider After Dark shows are now available. We will be doing live shows in both London and Atlanta on the 26th of July. The London one is at a new secret location. Um, Do not miss out. Head over to afterdark.11fs.com to book your tickets. Dave and I are not alone in the studio. We are joined, as usual, by some fantastic guests. We are joined by Hussein Kasai, CEO of Onfido. How are you today, Hussein? I am very well. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and Monty Mumford, uh, well, journalist and practically co-host at this point. How are you doing today, Monty? Nightmare. Trains to Brighton. <laughs> Two and a half hours to get here. But you're here now and you've I'm got a beer. I'm here now. I'm really happy. Let's, let's get started then. Let's get on with the news. So the first story this week comes from The Mirror. And the headline is that TSB Bank could be at least £150 million out of pocket over the IT crash. That's according to a workers' union, uh, which warns the bank will never recover from it. The estimated payout has been calculated by the union, and it's said to include the accumulation of compensation payouts, cancelling overdraft fees, and regulated penalty fines. In case you've missed it, I don't know where you've been, but the, the what happened was that uh, TSB tried to migrate their data en masse from Lloyd's banking group systems to a new one, and it all went quite spectacularly wrong. Um, There are still 75,000 complaints outstanding from customers. Um, They've already lost 12,500 customers in the process, and the TBU union, uh, which represents some of the TSB employees and has put this this piece together, says the bank may never recover and has called it the biggest IT disaster in British banking history. Who wants to start with that one? There's quite a lot of meat in there. Well, the meat I'm interested in is the union itself. It's quite unusual. Usually you get some apologia or mere culpa from TSB themselves or similar culprit. But do you know anything about the union? Do you know Do you know who they are, what they are? It's something that's been published in The Mirror, which is a great old legacy newspaper of <laughs> trade unionism, unionism. So as far as... I know, and if anybody knows better than this, do let us know. It's a reasonably recently formed union. They don't have a website. I tried to look them up, and they have a website coming soon. So as far as I'm aware, they have kind of come out of the woodwork, if you like, to protect what what they see might be, you know, um, negative effects coming towards their employees as a result of the meltdown. But I don't know more than that. I'm not. I'm not sure. We'll never recover. Is the sort of optimism you'd probably w- be wanting from a, a, a union in terms of <laughs> yeah. uh, you know the message that's kind of being sent out there type thing. But it's in, it's an interesting one. I I actually sort of feel like I don't know. I'm I'm playing a kind of a weird higher or lower in my head on this one to a certain degree because <laughs> 150 million doesn't actually sound like that bigger amount given the level of disruption that we're actually sort of seeing and still seeing really so i don't know what you guys think is this purely the this is purely the payouts to customers because i would have thought the fca will come along and slap a big old fine on them as well right absolutely i mean it is an estimate so and it's estimated by the union as opposed to any i don't suppose anybody else is willing to say yet i just always am skeptical of very round numbers (laughs) (laughs) it could be the potential customers they've already lost some they'll have fewer signups presumably 
But the bigger piece of the story is, is that the, the intention of the bank splitting and creating competition, the irony here is, is that it drills down the points and how important it is for there to be competition in the market. Mm-hmm. So it's easier for individuals to, or businesses in fact, because a lot of these cases are actually businesses struggling just because the banking went down. Um, having one or two or three different accounts so that they have access and they can get on with making payments and um, this crash has had all these negative consequences. But the broader mission here is to create more competition and more options for individuals so that you're not necessarily tied to one bank, especially if that one bank goes down, you'd ideally have alternatives. Um, what do you guys think? Is this the biggest IT disaster in British banking history? Because uh, I vaguely remember, wasn't RBS down for like two weeks at one point as well? And Well, we, we are, I mean, we're going to come on to this later in the show, actually. Nice, oh. nice little um, teaser for you there. But um, I, I don't, I mean, I, I have no idea it was the biggest IT disaster. How do you measure it? I mean, as you said, it's a very round number. Is it money lost? Is it customers upset? Is it damage to like GDP because people couldn't pay or be paid and said small businesses were struggling? I don't know how you'd measure it. I'd like, like some KPIs. I feel well, like we'd need a top 10. <laughs> why, do you think, why do you think it's a low figure, 150 million? Uh, well, just, just because of the, the sense of disruption that's happened in that space. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm probably slightly out of kilter with fining when we've seen PPI being in the billions, you know. So, you know, I guess there's a there's a different level of intent there, I guess, in kind of what happened. But, the, the you know, the, the disruption, the way in which it was handled, I guess we still haven't seen much come out of TSB in terms of changes, have we yet? Which I, I well, guess I, is a... I just looked up the biggest fines from the FCA last year and oh. Deutsche Bank was fined £163 million pounds right. by, just by the FCA before we even get to like other things. And that okay. was um, for breaches related to culture, governance and financial crime. And basically they weren't doing proper checks on people. But like, if you take that into account, it does feel quite low. Yeah. It also depends on what you consider an IT disaster. Because in 2008, a lot of the crash was as a result of IT systems and programs algorithms that ran into billions if not trillions mm. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like an IT fiasco as opposed <laughs> to a disaster that makes it sound quite pleasant though I'll be honest with you like fiasco party yeah. we, had a, we had a fiasco <laughs> an estivation I think, I think you dip that in guacamole don't you is that, is that right <laughs> Well, well, moving on from from one big number to another, um, the next story today is that uh, from The Telegraph, Monzo published the annual report for 2017 this week, and it said that their losses have widened, but their digital banks' user numbers have surged. So the numbers here are not round. Uh, They lost 33.1 million. Um, now it seems suspicious because it's point 0.1, one, right? Oh, that, that's somebody trying here too hard, right? Especially um, for you. <laughs> the, the expenses were due to getting a banking license, expansion of products and services, upgrading to current accounts, expanding their team. Uh, I mean, all these expenses are kind of in the past now, but that's that's basically where the losses came from. And at the same time, in you know, the positive news um, was that the cost per customer figure is down from a peak of sixty-five pounds last September to fifteen pounds today. What Monzo did say was that that fifteen of that fifteen pounds per customer. Customer ten pounds is actually uh, paying for customer support. It's actually customer service, humans, if you like. So they've they've said that they're planning to achieve profitability very soon through further cost cuts. I hope that's not I hope that's not reducing the team back down again. Um, I think I think both good and bad news there. I don't know. I don't know what anybody else thinks. If, if... Rap, rapid expansion, right? Yeah. Three hundred people in such a short period of time. Like that's pretty impressive in terms of the the scaling of this. I've seen a, a lot of people using this as a look told you challenger banks don't make any money and never catch on you know it's not not a big deal this is not going to work um but i think this is very much about the way in which the you know the position that they're actually in from a cycle perspective in terms of where they're at i think we'll see a very different number this time next year like going from 65 
pounds to, down to 15 pounds with everything that they've been doing. Like arguably if this was a bank project, they'd still be in an internal discussion around requirements in terms of the, the space that they're in. So, you know, they've gone to market, they've scaled their employees, they've scaled their customer base now to, what is it, 750,000 people. And now they have a cost of, um, cost per customer figure that pretty much every T1 bank could kill for. So I think this is going in plan of what they have from a directional perspective. So I know that they have a head of security, Monzo. Um, and what was what was the story last week? It was on the BBC about Monzo that they had seen a data breach before. Oh, uh, yeah, they spotted a data breach at Ticketmaster. So Ticketmaster. they basically noticed a load Absolutely. of fraud on their customers' accounts and pinned and tracked it back to it being Ticketmaster. So it's quite timely that they released this news about Ticketmaster and how clever they were and then a little bit later they tell you a story about how difficult i mean there was another story between the two which was that monzo messed up and their type they got hacked their typeform data was um, so typeform which is a, a service that a lot of people use to go out and gather customer responses um was hacked and uh, monzo data was breached it wasn't monzo's fault but um they that they haven't they haven't had a great run it's been very up and down i would mm. say their news yeah i suppose well with the typeform incidents they dealt with it quite quickly they said that they'd ended the relationship and they're sort of on their recovery path um i should say i have a a small conflict here. We are partners of Monzo's, we're a supplier. But um, knowing the team and more importantly, I guess the strategy, investing so much in customer service is something that I guess the mainstream banks were saying, look, we're not necessarily having to be worried about the challenger banks, the digital banks, because we give that personal touch, we give the customer service. What Monzo's been able to prove with such a strong yeah, enough brand is that I, as a consumer, can go on there, chat to someone if I have a trouble or any problems. They're really on it, really friendly, very much engaged in ensuring they retain my business. Mm. And if it's the growth and the user, I guess, retention are all very impressive metrics. So mm. it seems as though the scalability and the investments and the customer service strategy is paying off. Yeah, I, I made that exact point today to somebody. I was like... Uh, you know, if you're looking for good ex- good experience of how to talk to people and the tone and the you know the, the tone of voice that they use, the way in which they engage with people, uh, their customer service is awesome. But then I realised that I haven't actually used it for 51 weeks. So I was like, <laughs> the customer service. Yeah. So, but I I haven't so I haven't needed to use it for 51 weeks, and I was quite impressed by that because actually, yeah, and I, and I think there was a maybe a time and a place where the product wasn't perfect, but actually they used very good customer service to, to sort of overcome that by being really, really sort of positive, really, really friendly. Now the product's at the point where you, I don't need to use it. I Theoretically, my primary bank, I haven't spoken to anybody there for over a year. Well, I mean, in, in contrast, I've spoken to them twice in two days because there's um, a lot of the pub, a lot of the chains in London. Um, I found that my Monzo card is not being accepted through Google Pay. And every time that happens, you're supposed to report it to them. So basically what's happened is that I was in a, uh, like a Young's pub and they said, we don't accept Monzo through Google Pay. We just don't do that. And then I was on an EasyJet flight and they said, we don't accept Monzo either. And I, you report it to Monzo so they can work out why their cards are being turned down. Is this um, twi- twice in two days you were trying to buy alcohol and you got turned down? Like, I'm sensing a pat. Is this oh, an no, intervention, no, Sarah? One was Mark Spencer. So there was EasyJet, Mark Spencer's, and then Young's Pubs. Fine, but okay. I was buying my dinner in Mark Spencer's. Okay, fine. okay? Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've gone off topic. But the point being that they are actually really, your, your point is that they're actually really 
keen to get to the bottom of it. So we're so sorry this happened. Okay, what happened? Exactly what happened? Okay, can you give us a receipt? Okay, well, that hasn't worked. Um, can you tell us how much it was, what the tra- transaction was, where it was? We'll come right back to you. Uh, and so even when, even when something does go wrong, they're just so much more useful than quite often I find somebody on the phone from my other bank where they're like, I don't know. It's just your card. Your card's faulty. I'll send you a new one. And I'm like, but I don't, I don't want a new one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but, so, but so, so if they acted on that, how would that be communicated to you as a consumer? Well, they would, basically, there are there are some merchants that do um, have, have warnings or, or, or uh, don't accept Monzo cards, largely because what Monzo does is online processing, uh, which means that they can you can get that notification that says you've just spent £5 X or £10 Y. Um, not all banks have... Very few do because it takes longer for the transaction to go through. The shops don't want you standing there for, you know, bars certainly don't want you standing there for an extra few seconds. And on the other hand, um, if it takes longer than you're used to, sometimes people walk away and then the card is declined. And then what happens is that the bar sees that everybody whose card was declined was a Monzo card. And then they think, okay, that's the problem. So it's, I mean, they, they, are kind of aware of this and what they do is they publish blogs about it and say okay so right now we're really sorry you can't use your card at x but we're talking to them and they just published a guide for merchants actually being like this is how our cards work this is how you can stop this happening it's quite, quite a good time for them to be tested during the world cup with this mania yeah. of pubs <laughs> and you know i went to the clapham grand to watch the panama game and i was covered in beer after about four minutes you know jesus christ i don't think i've ever been in a place like that but I can imagine how annoyed I would be if someone's in front of me. You know, it's like someone yeah. buying a fucking coffee in a pub. That, sh- that should be banned anyway. You know what I mean? It does seem very un-British, doesn't it? It does very un-British. There's a story here being, is it a problem that they're making a loss? If I knew I'd bank one and bank two and bank one is making a bit of a loss, that's short term, but investing in customer service. Mm-hmm. Bank two is making billions in profits and not investing any in customer service. No, I'd still bank with bank one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally fair. So we've got a sort of, you know, a, a segue story here, which is um, sticking with challenger banks and actually talking about the investment they've received. So apparently more than $2.8 billion has been raised by challenger banks globally since 2014. Um, and there was a, a record level in the first three months of 2018. So basically, in the first quarter of 2018, we've already seen 67% of the total capital raised last year. So we're, we're totally going to smash that. Um, the biggest deals were N26 raising £160 million and Atom raising £149.1 million. I assume that's been converted from dollars. Uh, you can see journeys from both of these companies in 11FS Pulse, should you wish to. Please visit 11fspulse.com for more information. I've, I've, I've checked out Pulse, actually. Out it's pretty good. <laughs> it is. It's, it's actually amazing, amazing, <laughs> amazing products. I'm glad you agree. I would have been slightly awkward if you no. didn't. <laughs> Rubbish. Um, it, like, we very awkward 10 minutes after yeah. that. But, um, so so that, out of that 2.8 billion, bearing in mind N26 is German, right? Mm. Uh, an atom of the UK, yep. right? So that sounds as if the, Europe's leading the way. Did they give you numbers how it was split? Like? Uh, I, I mean, Europe is definitely, the biggest deals still remain in Europe. Yeah. I know that Chime raised 70 million earlier this year, which is a US uh, equivalent, if you like. Simple is obviously now owned by BBVA Compass, so they kind of probably aren't going to be running around so raising not money. China Asia then? No, not so much. And Neat did raise $2 million this week. Neat's a, a Hong Kong uh, competitor in this space, but I mean, $2 million um, is not really anything compared to 160 million. I mean, it's still a lot of money for a startup, but it's not no, not of that scale. What would be really interesting to do is go and have a look at this data and, and see who's actually investing in them. Because yeah. um, mm. when you start looking at something like Atom, then actually you start seeing that, you know, BBVA put a whole heap of that money into them, haven't they? Uh, you know, we're seeing, you know, other, I think there's, Alliance and various different people putting money into N26. So, you know, how many of the big 
old FS players are investing into brand new startups who are, uh, you know, potentially being seen as their life raft sort of further down the line, potentially. Um, I think the other thing is this doesn't take into account uh, banks building challenger banks for themselves. So mm. this, this amount of money is probably significantly lower than the real number that's actually going into, you know, fundamentally transferring the, um, transforming the, the sort of tech industry from a, uh, an inside to out. We'd love to know well. how, Santan, how much money Santander put into their SME bank that launched this week. Yeah. Uh, where, where would you put the kind of financial raise within that? I mean, well, it's, it's private equity. No, no, it's private. Yeah, but, 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 but I was at the House of Lords for a uh, UK meets China fintech slash blockchain event about two weeks ago. Uh, and the level of ignorance when it comes to Ant Financial, I'm not going to say the Lord's name because he was the host, but he was very kind and all that stuff, very posh. Stood up in the kind of home of democracy and said that Brexit was the worst thing ever. ever and then made a, a joke, allegedly, um, about Ant Financial. He'd seen the, the list of Chinese companies and said something about, I see that Ant Financial were here. And for God's sake, for one minute, I was wondering whether Deck was coming with them. And it's like, I said, excuse me, did you know that they raised $14 billion on a valuation of $150 billion? And he went, oh, oh, bloody hell. Well, that literally made all the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah. So uh, that's... It's, uh, it's, yeah, sorry, he's saying. No, well, I guess it, I think that this is only the beginning, that the challenger banks are here to stay in here for the future. They weren't taken as seriously, it seems, about even as close as three years ago. Because the mainstream banks thought, how can you have a purely online bank? Mm -hmm. Like customers, where would they go to sign up? Or you're going to get all the fraudsters going online. But all these challenger and online sort of digital banks have proven that they're not just more scalable, but they're actually giving a better customer experience. And they, at times, have lower risk and lower fraud rates than the mainstream banks do. The, I guess, real credibility point here is, is like, as you said, the mainstream banks are investing in these banks. And the mainstream banks seem to be struggling with going digital. Mm -hmm. I mean, notwithstanding the first point we made this morning yeah. <laughs> earlier about the TSP story, but it's actually... Taking legacy systems and going fully digital isn't easy. So they are either investing in a digital bank or spinning up a new digital bank themselves. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that the mainstream banks do now see this as the future as well has got investors even more excited. Yeah. But it's a if you consider, I guess, the fundamental purpose of a bank, connecting borrowers and savers, helping people open bank accounts, building a, a trust layer, all these things can be done in, uh, online in a digital way. So mm -hmm. you kind of no longer need the mainstream bank as, as we traditionally have thought about. So it. do you see this 2.8 billion you know, in 2018, better than last year. You see that as a real tipping point? It's a tipping point, and will I think it will continue to be like yeah, this, just because as much of the noise and as much as, as of all, all, given all the stories, all these digital and online banks put together account for probably less than 1% or 2% of the actual banking, right? And that's, you know, they have a long way to go, and they've been able to prove it. I think people also underestimate how expensive properly running a bank is as well so so you can raise you know you can be a startup and you can raise you know 100 million and that's like through the roof when you're paying for a banking license and you're paying for the regulation and you're only allowed x number of customers until you've got it like the capital requirements here are on another level and i think people miss that sometimes as well no but i think i think again talking about monzo earlier i think that's also a similar tipping point mm. in the fact that you know that they're knocking down the price to kind of run a customer and all that stuff. I think that's just as important as the 2.8 billion. And there should be something to be said for like the whole approach of these challenger and digital banks, like fundamentally, they're putting the customer experience right at the heart of everything that they do. The mainstream banks, it seemed for a while, they were kind of happy running businesses as usual and not, not being overly concerned about users, not having a great experience. But when you 
give this such a blowout customer experience, it's no wonder that everyone is looking to sign up. And that's one of the reasons why the mainstream banks are paying so much attention mm-hmm. because millennial signups have really mm-hmm. dropped off a cliff. Yeah, but, but I would, I would, I've, I've been with Lloyds for 25, 30 years. I mean, I don't even know how long it is. But I don't see any movement from Lloyds. They've got a shiny new app. They do have a new app. <laughs> so there is a difference, I suppose, what, back to my point around like the digital banks getting it. A user experience isn't a nice app. It's very much yeah, end-to-end. Yeah, you know, you're at home, you sign up, and you, you gain access to all these services. If there's an issue, you chat mm-hmm. with someone, you get it resolved, rather than call a call center. It's a holistic end-to-end full experience. It, yeah, it is, it is absolutely right. It's, it's that um, failure to understand, as you say, the, the complete user experience. So I know I know that you know what you do, Hussein, you work with a load of these banks to enable you to literally pick up your mobile phone and have a bank account. And if you're with Starling, you can have a card that you can spend money on in 15 minutes, like from start to finish. I mean, there isn't a single... I mean, and I've spoken to the legacy banks, as, as you say, Monty, and I've been like, so uh, are you worried? And they're like, no, 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 we could do that tomorrow if we wanted. And I'm like, well, we'll do it absolutely. then. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of Lloyds, before we just move on, I don't know if you guys saw, but um, a fellow called Dan Mikowski was appointed the CDO of uh, Lloyds Banking Group CDO. this week. CDO. CDO. Okay. Um, Design. You re, re, uh, dig, uh, chief designer. Oh, so. Design. Okay. Yeah, so um, he's a really smart guy, actually. Previously at Walmart and Google and various other places, kind of a uh, cap one, actually running all of the design side of things. Um, so yeah, really interesting to see him coming over to the to the UK. Well, I think that design should be kind of paramount to mm. to that to those offerings. Yeah, I didn't know that. Well, moving on to um, maybe maybe something that will move the bar. Um, the FCA has announced the uh, cohort for their their fourth uh, regulatory sample. Box. They have accepted 29 businesses out of 69 who applied. Uh, there's a huge range of services uh, being tested in the sandbox this time around. We've got consumer credit, we've got automated advice, insurance, uh, crypto assets is an interesting one. Um, traditional players include NatWest, who's doing a DLT project, and Standard Life, which is working on an automated advice solution. From my perspective, I'm really pleased to see this still going. I'm really pleased to see the variety of businesses getting in there and, and, and you know having a go. We have yet to see maybe how effective it is but they're moving very quickly and they are giving all the I mean we've spoken to a couple of people over on our InsureTech show who've been through and they've been like it's the best thing in the world for us so I'm really happy that they're still going with it I I suppose from my side um, slightly ignorantly I didn't know that this was a thing and I didn't I mean your your response that it's still going means that I'm clearly out of the loop um can you say? Can you explain more about the kind of history of it? Or? Well, we were part of the for, first cohorts. And this, uh, how many co- cohorts have there been? This is fourth. This would be cohort no, number four. Uh, yeah, this, yeah, this, this is, is the fourth. Yeah. yeah. So it's almost a kind of like accelerator. Well, yeah, Hussein, do you want to tell us about your experience? I'm sorry, I'd forgotten that you'd been through. Yes. So. so the FCA's regulatory sandbox. It is a question around in a world of change. You have startups using innovation technology to try new things that carries risks. You know, there may be malpractice there may be a case of you know not being compliant so yet you have some regulators across the world where their purpose is to prevent malpractice and you can achieve that by preventing all innovation so the fca's approach is let's ensure customers gain access to financial services while preventing malpractice and in order to do it that way you need this sort of environment sandbox whereby you have say uh, mainstream banks insurance companies fintechs regtechs and and the regulator overseeing everything so you take a step at a time you try new things but there's frequent and fast iterations of feedback and that's how you can make sure that you're 
delivering innovation, and yet there's no uh, scope for abuse as such. Is it an ecosystem then? It's very much an ecosystem, yeah. okay. and it's a very well-run, structured program. Chris Wallard, who leads the FCA, is an incredibly impressive individual. Mm. And everywhere you go from government, private sector, incumbent banks, fintechs, and how's it everyone evolve? has how's very it, many good things to say. How's it evolve? It's getting stronger. Fifth iteration or fourth? Uh, so fifth four. is just, a uh, application is just open, but this is the fourth one that's just been published. And, and it's it, more companies being accepted. Right, so okay. the first one was sort of 10 or 11, and then it's 20, and then it's whatever else. Um, I mean, Anna um, Wallace as well, who's over at Project Innovation, they've worked really, really hard to make sure they've got the staff for this. Um, I think the interesting thing as well, from because I have a bit of a reg- love for reg tech, um, is that the... <laughs> the regulators are taking what they've learned to decide how to regulate people like yourself as well so a business like on Fido they would have never have even seen 10 years ago and they decide well do they come you know do you come under the FCA's remit or do you come under somebody else's remit and the FCA is using what it's learned to decide how it's going to write regulation particularly important relating to advice and new forms of investment and um, on that space blockchain crypto assets that kind of thing so they're learning as they go so they can have a more informed uh, decision when it comes to writing the rules oh well I'd actually like to write about so the point now where they've, they're doing a global sandbox as well. So they're going to be working trying. with various different <laughs> players to kind of set it up from a global perspective. But it wasn't a global thing before? No, purely UK-based in terms of right, actually okay. where they're going because everything that falls under the FCA's ju- jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but essentially, you know, HKMA, Singapore, Abu Dhabi, you know, there's so many different regulators who are emulating what's happened here. Um, you know, I think it's been a real success story for the FCA because it gives them a, no, an so export, which is great, you know. And on the global so. point as well, sorry, I was saying on the global point as well, I, I was speaking, uh, listened to Anna Wallace speak a few weeks ago and she was saying that they really, really want to get this off the ground so that, you know, when Fido starts in the UK and then you decide that you want to go out to Hong Kong and work there and they, they want to there to be one set of rules that you, okay, you're compliant here, we've got a fintech bridge, if, as you say, the HKMA, We'll just you can just go. You know, you don't have to bother with trying to get licensed or, or yeah. speak to anybody. Anna's great. Me and um, random tangent here. Me and Jason <laughs> went to a. It wouldn't a, be a show without a David random tangent. Indeed, at least one. Um, me and Jason went to a uh, presentation that she was doing to talk about the sandbox before it was. She turned up about fifteen minutes late, so you know that's that's not the negative about it. And then just blew everybody out of the water. Yeah. And the first time I've seen somebody from the FCA turn up with no notes, no yeah. nothing, She's in fantastic. jeans and a t- uh, jeans and trainers type thing and then just like riffed for an hour and a half and it was phenomenal like really really good I've seen her actually wake up an asset management conference because everybody had fallen asleep and she came (laughs) on the stage and we went oh bloody hell and it goes to your earlier points around you know mainstream banks what's stopping them being perhaps more innovative it's when you don't know what the risks are, you don't know what, what the re- regulatory reaction may be. This is the perfect environment. So in our use case, we actually went in with a large insurance provider. And our use case was, instead of you having to um, renew your insurance on a phone call and things of that nature, you can just verify your face and your ID on the phone and then be c- at just as compliant. And that only was able to be, I guess, proven in a successful way as a result of this. So it's so many different things that sounds, benefited sounds, sounds from amazing. it. Uh, there's um, some super interesting stuff in there. No doubt we'll be coming back to a few of them, but there's a hell of a lot of DLT in there, there right? There's a lot. They've kind of, I think they've been slightly cautious about DLT to this point, but now the Bank of England is doing all its own DLT work. I mean, segue, go listen to Blockchain Insider because we talked about that this week as well. <laughs> plug, um, plug, plug. For people who have been listening to all of our podcasts this week, you've had a lot of my voice so I apologise but yeah no you're, you're right it's, it's interesting to see the variety of companies that are coming through so we're going to take a quick break we'll be back very shortly imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open packaged and upgradable 
Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. Uh, If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. Now, on with the show. Sticking with the FCA, an article this week from the Financial Times said that an update to the FCA's review into retail banking business models shows that up to half of current account profits come from just 10% of customers. So overdraft fees and charges provide about 30% of the total profit generated by current accounts, um, but 2% of accounts pay more than half of those charges. So basically, a very, very few people are paying an awful lot of money to sustain everybody else having a free So this bank consumer, account. not business? It's all retail, isn't it? This the, the, oh, sorry, retail. Sorry. It's the retail bank's business models. This is yes. horrific as well because it's mm. it's that vulnerable two percent who are sort of stemming it for everybody else in terms of that space. So it's it's terrifying, really, isn't it? You know, I'm not necessarily sure what they are going to be able to necessarily do about this though because it's sort of fundamental to the way in which they're business models work well, for these product sets? Yeah, so the FCA is basically, this is an update, and they basically, the FCA always asks for a response. They're like, what do you think? And there's you, anybody listening can respond, also the banks are invited to respond. We um, should start doing that, I think. It'd be fun. You're looking at me when you said that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> so basically, they've asked for responses for, till, the end, uh, till the 7th of September, um, and the next stage of the review will look at the possible future scenarios, including what branch closure programs mean for consumers, and also how technology and regulatory changes may affect the market. So they're actually suggesting that the banks really need to, like the challenger banks have done, rethink their business models, rethink how you can make money, because technology means you can do it without persecuting these these more vulnerable customers. I know on the flip side of that, didn't we sort of talk earlier on about Monzo making a, a 33.1 million loss type thing? So uh, I'm not sure that's necessarily the revamp of the business <laughs> model that... Uh, mm you know, the FCA is calling for, but I, I take the point. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think as we said, you know, Monzo's losses will probably narrow, certainly significantly this year, you know, and the, 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 the sort of, it's the other products that you can offer. So yeah, you could offer an overdraft, but it's also about responsible overdrafts. So offering them to people who are going to pay them back. And then you look at other things like loans or, you know, Monzo's working with TransferWise, there'll be some kind of revenue share there as well. So Monzo will make some money, you know, they do, they recommend um, changing your electricity provider, for example. They did that for a while. They've had a beta in that to see, you know, actually you guys are spending 200 pounds a year or 200 pounds a month on your electricity you could actually spend 180 if you switch we'll help you switch and then again there's a revenue share model there so there are other ways of making money i think is the point i i think um i, I genuinely think this will become a, a an element of self-selecting though so from you know from my perspective I, I guess it's while there was nobody doing anything other than incredibly predatory business models then actually customers you know particularly the people who needed the most help had no other alternative so you know this is a i know we've spoken about fintech for good but you know this is where people coming in without those predatory business models actually provide a an opportunity particularly when you're looking at that you know that bottom two percent who you know you're having a bank account doesn't you know isn't financial inclusion financial inclusion is a lot broader topic than that in terms of the the capability and what's needed so yeah. you know i kind of feel like this is a you know 
fintech started as sort of fluff at the top from a customer experience perspective. And actually what we're seeing is, you know, significant changes now required to the business models of big banks to keep up. Like that's 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 impact for me. As a kind of outsider, as a alleged you're an outsider on fintech inside. I'm, I'm an outsider. There nice. you go. There's your, there's your strap. What you were saying earlier about Monzo and the, and the alleged narrative is that you know let's basically sounds a bit like crypto really. Um, there's a kind of rump of people that just want to think that challenger banks are just not important. And insane what you were saying earlier about tipping point and all that stuff. Uh, so this is all great what, what we're talking about, and, and I'm learning quite a lot as well. But I, I just see a critical mass or an inflection point or a tipping point, excuse the cliche, it does seem quite a long way away. You know, it seems, seems, oh, yeah. it seems that the people that are moving from, I mean, I, I signed up for Revolut about two or three weeks ago and I had a beard so they didn't kind of verify me and all that stuff. And it kind of pissed, kind of, kind of, <laughs> No, well, kind Slightly of, worried there. Well, 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 it kind of pissed me off a little bit, do you know what I mean? Because it's, oh, God, I want this to be fast and simple. And you're, you're telling me stories how fast and simple it is. Um, and I'm, I'm not a lunchtime, I'm a lunchtime adopter, not an early adopter, if you know what I mean. But it, it seems to me that, that to get people to move from Lloyds and Barclays in the UK uh, over to Revolut or to Monzo or Starling or Atom or whatever, it's, it still seems to me like quite a long way away. Would, would you, mm. so, do so you I, reckon? I, look, it's what, 700,000, what, Revolut have got 2 million customers. You know, I think there's a big enough dent now. And I think if you look at the... So I, it's a it, dent, yeah. yeah, yeah. But if you if you look at the, the comparators, like First Direct have been put up as a uh, the gods of customer experience and changes for 20 years, and they've got less customers than Revolut do. You know, I know they've got a much more diverse product set in terms of what they're yeah. doing, and, you know, they, they run in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, it sounds but, a bit eggy to me. But uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's way beyond a trend. I think it's a. I think it's a thing now. This is a thing that's not going away. But is it, is it is it? Sorry to interrupt. So clearly, you're a brilliant moderator, um, and I talk a bit too much as well. But, but isn't it a thing that maybe this is millennial led? Well, what, what I was going to say was that, that actually what we didn't mention earlier we about Monzo's uh, annual report is that their growth strategy is network based. So their growth strategy is to develop products that work better the more people you know who are also using Monzo. Precisely. So they have this amazing thing which is basically if I put if we all went out for a round of drinks and I was like right you all owe me uh, I don't know whatever it is £10 you just put your phones on the table next to my phone and it will find each of you and then you just go no, it awesome. will find me and go pay Sarah £10 pay Sarah £10 pay Sarah £10 and Revolut does that as well pay friends near me um, so that kind of that that ease of use. Uh, well, what was the US of, thing that was kind of like derided a little bit? Venmo? Oh, Venmo's, yeah. It's the same, it's the same idea. It's building a network. But the, the point being that their growth strategy is based around me saying, guys, you've all got to get a Monzo card because then our lives are going to be collectively better. You say that in the office every day. It's just getting weird. As if nobody in our office hasn't got a Monzo card. I have a 15, yeah. I have a 15 year old son. So I, I presume that when he got to certain ages, you know, like save son, save here's some money, save money, here's, you, here's a picture of him taking his money out of the first cash point, this is your account, you're responsible for it. Uh, I was clearly a little bit old-fashioned in that respect, you know what I mean? When the Revolut card arrived two days ago, he kind of pulls out the card and goes, oh, Dad, that's really cool. And, and then, you're uh, cool, No, well no, Well, done. That, that would never happen. You know? <laughs> but, but then he starts you know, getting a, ch- a teenager to read anything that's written down as opposed to being on the screen. He kind of pulled it open. There's the card on the left. It wasn't one of the premium platinum mm. ones. 
and he would jump straight to the the printed literature literature that this is you don't have to pay this and this is that and he'd be like, oh that's amazing dad and it's like well, that's that was kind of my mm -hmm. personal tipping point but that type of thing is the type of thing that kind of invigorates me and wakes me up to say okay that's important mm -hmm. you know what i mean and maybe that's maybe i'm being a little bit cynical and that feeds into this story here about you know unfair banking fees yeah. because it is competition at the end of the day where mainstream banks if there have been uh, there has been a lack of competition they could get away with 30 pound 40 pound 50 pound fines and especially sort of those who are stuck with few options have no choice but to pay but now that there are these alternatives over time you'd like to think that um, all banks would be a little bit more proportionate with the fines that they place especially when this is the the stats around you know two percent of the accounts pay more mm. and equally it's you'd like to think that part of the problem here is again short-sighted thinking mm -hmm. whereas I, if you're a student I would as a bank offer you a service yes you'd go into overdraft I'd give you a good service regardless and maybe we'll be a bit more gentle with not levying too heavy a fine but knowing that you know in 10 years you'll get a job I may service you for your mortgage mm -hmm. I may do your remittance business and so on but again it seems to be the digital and the challenger banks that are already thinking about no, I want no, to do your remittance business and I want to do all these other but, 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 at the same time but I would, I would also kind of suggest that, that the exodus from traditional banks to challenger banks or mobile only banks i mean there must be a little bit of like wrongans that don't really like their bank and thinking wow i've got a sanctuary that i can use this kind of you know new technology so i don't so i'm not maybe not a good customer and maybe Sarah, what you were saying earlier is that that kind of exodus is kind of people that just are not so much disillusioned with traditional banking are just thinking, ah, oh, opportunity. It's, it's surprisingly a new point around, is it sort of a millennial trend alone? There isn't too much data on it, but it is not necessarily just millennials. It tends to be those who are struggling with the existing systems. Mm -hmm. Millennials happen to be that because they usually don't have a large credit footprint or, uh, you know, they just start university for the first time they didn't account. And you've all seen the queues at banks, you know, the first uh, few weeks of the term. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also the financially sort of uh, underserved. It's the underbanked. Mm -hmm. And these are, you know, you have other banks that are niche sort of uh, pocket offer prepaid card focused yeah. exclusively on, on these individuals they're all doing well because they're offering services that the mainstream banks haven't been able to so and far. I think it's worth pointing out that Starling and Monzo both offer overdrafts both will charge you 15% and if you go onto Starling's website you can see that that's the lowest possible rate they can offer um, you go up to some of the big banks which remain nameless you get to 149% mm. on an unexplained overdraft so like, like they are yes they're making money off it but they are exactly as you say treating people more fairly and being open about it and yeah there is one small point around you do and you can perhaps feel for the banks to some extent because they have legacy it's an opinion and I, 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 I'm with you but uh, <laughs> if you hear me out it's, it's, it's very costly for these banks to onboard individuals mm. and you have to, you know you can't have it both ways if you want a bank branch which has rents and rates and so on it's going to cost you a lot mm. so I could understand if my high street bank is charging me a bit more mm. but ideally third, more proportionate 30% 40% yeah. not 140 uh, yeah. and the magic with these fintechs and online banks in particular is how they've been able to reduce the customer onboarding from, from 20 30 pounds right down to 10 and sometimes even seven because they 
digital onboarding and compliance and all these have been streamlined to such a great extent. The next story is from CNET and it's a company called Exactus. Now, nobody has ever heard of this company, but apparently um, they are a data broker based in Palm Coast, Florida, um, and they put 340 million people's records on a publicly accessible (laughs) server. A researcher, a security researcher, found two versions of this database that each had around 340 million records with roughly 230 million on consumers and 110 million records from businesses, according to Wired. Um, the exposure was found by a security researcher who found it really easily. Basically, it was a public survey. He reported it to the FBI. Uh, you, you can no longer access the data, thank goodness. It's hard to know how many people are affected. Uh, the leak doesn't seem to contain financial information in the terms of like credit cards or security numbers. Uh, sorry, social security numbers. But it does contain minute detail. And this is what's scary um, of each individual listed, including your phone number, your home address, your email address, and personal personal characteristics such as whether you smoke, your religion, whether you have pets and interests such as whether you like, you know, scuba diving or whether you buy plus size clothing. So, wow. Some some niche information. (laughs) Um, But what I was going to say there was like, you know, that kind of thing makes you think, oh my God, I want to leave a provider. So you're saying like offboard, I want to leave a a bank. But if it's this guy that nobody's ever heard of, this company in America that has all this data, I mean, that's practically every person in America. I think it's quite extraordinary that you, you find out names of companies that you didn't know exist until they get hacked. Yeah. Right? It's like, oh my God, I didn't know that. Well, well, these guys didn't get hacked. They just gave it away. Well, yeah, well, no, that's absolutely, you're correct. But, but I, I have no doubt that all of my information is taken anyway. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't think that it's new. I think there's other ways of it being taken and hacked or shared or whatever. So it's not a big shock to me that this type of thing goes on. I think for me, there's a couple of things. One is that it was a publicly accessible server. So guys, that was a mistake. I think it also suggests that we are focusing our attention in the wrong places. So if we're looking at GDPR and they're going after Facebook and Google and people like that, well, those guys know what's coming their way. They know that everybody's going to attack them any which way they can. So they're going to be sensible about it. It's these other companies that are happening over here. I mean, it would be, I mean, you're right, Monty. I assume everybody has my email address. They could probably find my phone number if they wanted to Sarah at no I'm sorry. <laughs> well I mean Sarah at 11fs.com is, is fairly, fairly easy to find but the point being I think that our attention gets distracted and we focus so much on banks being hacked or we focus so much on big companies being hacked we forget about all this other data that's being stored mm. in random places oh, absolutely yeah. and, and it's getting worse so I guess if your data is leaked that means all I would need as a potential fraudster is your date of birth name and address I can open an, a bank account in some places with just those inf- in information. States, yeah. yeah, and all that is needed is those are checking against a credit bureau model and a credit bureau, again, will just say, do you exist or not? And that's sufficient, which is why in many ways we're kind of, as a company at Onfido, we're not for the centralized leaking database credit bureau model and very much more for a decentralized model. And that's why your conversations around distributed ledger technology and blockchain mm-hmm. providers do are likely to offer a solution for the future where the consumer owns their legal identity and only they decide which businesses to give it to because this current situation with identity verification and it being so broken it's not just a case of you get a breach once every quarter or once every year now it's almost a weekly occurrence but what are you doing then you're putting your finger in the dam to stop the torrent that has already gone by or your business is like different to that oh uh, so yeah we're different because we, we, we for well businesses that use us typically the online banks they, it's not sufficient for them just to put your date of birth, name and address mm. because it's so easy to cheat. That's why you would provide your government ID, you'd provide your facial recognition so that we know that not only do you exist, but you are who you claim to be. Mm. Hence, it's more secure and, and the intention is so that I think this is a massive, massive thing. 
It is. It's almost like two point, version 2.0 of identity. It's the way we see it is so that the current model can't continue. You can't have more. As every time I, as a user, open an account somewhere, they're going to retain my data. That exponentially increases the likelihood of me being the victim of identity fraud, and therefore all this theft happening. And on a global scale, you have 8% of the world GDP is laundered money, which is used for human trafficking, drug trafficking, terrorist financing, like a lot of ills that we just never hear about and never see because you have very sophisticated fraudsters in, in some parts of the world with you know performance-related pay and everything else <laughs> geared towards mass-scale financial crime. People are trying very hard to... Put, as you say, put the finger and dangle on, the, on this area, but they're not looking in the right place. And this, um, the, I was just going to say the thing about GDPR, what actually GDPR made me do was unsubscribe from a load of people and try and scrub my data because I had forgotten who had my data, where I had accounts. And then, you know, a few months ago, I started getting this deluge of emails saying, you know, we have all your data. And I was like, delete, 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 delete. And I, I had no idea where I'd opened accounts or who with. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who suddenly was like, oh my God, I opened an account at that shop when I was 16 and now they've still got my data. If you do want more information on GDPR, please do listen to our FinTech Insider Insights show called uh, Dirty Data. That is episode 220. <laughs> it's a particularly good title. Um, we go into it in much more detail there. I will move us on, but I will stay with cyber. Our next story comes from City AM and it is that banks will be subjected to cyber stress tests to see if they can withstand a major hacking attack. So the Bank of England is working with the National Cyber Security Centre and it plans to test financial services companies' abilities to recover in the event of a major cyber attack. Sorry. So that takes us back to our earlier stories. So if a firm fails these tests, they'll have to agree remedial action plans, which sounds like something you get subjected to in school, uh, to improve their ability to face similar situations in the future. So the point being that if, for example, TSB goes down and nobody who banks with TSB can make a payment or receive a payment, that is actually threatening financial stability in this country because so many people bank with TSB. So somebody's woken up to this and realised, oh my God, this could have a real problem. And the suggestion is these stress tests, although I haven't found much detail on this, so I don't know if anybody else knows any more about this. Uh, to me, that sounds a little bit... Is it, do they have any teeth if the stress test means that they're no good? The Bank of England does stress tests on banks anyway to see how much money they have in the bank and you know how much they've lent and all that kind of thing to check they've got reserves. And they can be like, no, you will find you or we'll have oh, to. Okay, I know that. Okay. But I don't... It's not. It's nowhere near developed enough when it comes to cybersecurity yet. I, I think this is a, another example, though, of how um, the difference between... A bank that's running on 1960s infrastructure and technology would operate differently to a, a challenger bank who can literally scrub the entirety of everything that they've got from a bank perspective and stand it all up again in an hour. You know, like I, I kind of think this is just mm. is just almost like the difference between today's technology and actually what you can do with it, and the sort of house of cards that we've got in many of the the sort of technology, you know, back ends of many of the mainstream banks. Is it? Is it? Right, that kind of traditional banks are run on COBOL. Or, Many of them, yeah. Yeah, so, so is that a kind of flaw and a deficiency in itself? Not necessarily COBOL in itself, but a lot of the, the ways in which their architecture is sort of created and the ways in which they're dealing with physical infrastructure is is causing sort of limitations in terms of what they've got. What is COBOL, please? COBOL's a very old programming language that you get paid a lot of money to be very good at these days. Uh, no, they're, so they're the ones that they fly in in a helicopter to fix problems. In fact, there's COBOL cowboys actually over in the US, isn't there? Who are, uh, <laughs> is there really They're uh, uh, kind of a, I think their average age is like 45 as a, as a development community, but they're up to like 60 plus It's like people. the millennium buggers. Yeah. 18 it, years later. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's like the A-team. They sort of uh, swing them in to come and uh, fix, uh, fix the bank. 
banks. Oh, I see. So that would be the first thing that existing banks would do. They'd change that COBOL architecture. Well, it, it's it's not it's not necessarily COBOL that's the problem in this instance. Right, okay, it's about okay, disaster yeah. recovery. Right. So if somebody infiltrated a system, which has happened in examples like Tesco Bank had a at an incident in this in this case, then how do you know what has happened? How do you how are you monitoring uh, network activity within the organisation to know has anybody inserted anything maliciously? Have they done anything to uh, change the way in which your code is being represented blockchain, to customers? Blockchain. Well, I mean, it's, it's worlds away as well from Monzo saying we spotted that Ticketmaster, you know, was breached and, you know, committing fraud and all that kind yeah. of stuff. I know it's not. I know that that's not Monzo's own banking infrastructure, but it is. It's world. I can't even imagine that Lloyd's would even have thought to try and work it out. Do you know what I mean? Well, Lloyd's have made it IBM's problem, right? So IBM will be worrying about this one. But I, I, I kind of <laughs> think it's a again. If you look at other industries, you know, other uh, Spotify can literally. Um, spin up a completely new instance of their entirety of what they do in like 20 minutes you know like this is a just lateral industries have got this in a completely different a completely different way I think it's a good move um, given that financial access is a of strategic importance and in a world where you have North Korea and other countries heavily investing in a cyber attack capabilities mm. it's ensuring that not just public sector but private businesses especially banks that offer such a fundamental service are ready and, and are, are being sort of tested on balance as far as different businesses go it seems as though banks is one of the areas they seem to be getting right and you know they are seen amongst most consumers as one of the more trustworthy of institutions but it's a, a world where you have very very sophisticated technologies and very many determined people from different parts of the world looking at causing harm using cyber attacks it seems as though this is a pretty innovative and pretty impressive move i mean especially in a world where we have much less cash so mm -hmm. you know if my electronic bank goes down i'm absolutely scuppered <laughs> i would have to start like trading my jewelry for the, you know i don't know if tfl takes off a bangles in exchange for an oyster card i must move us on because we've been talking for a while uh, our final story today is uh from business insider my old pals goldman sachs ceo and waiting has just released his first edm or electronic dance music single a remix of a popular <laughs> sorry i can't say that without laughing a popular fleetwood mac song in case people didn't know who fleetwood mac were and it's already a hot song of the summer on spotify so goldman sachs president david solomon who is an edm dj uh, dj's d soul if you want to go and find him dj d soul i think that's right yes uh in his spare time uh, released his first single in early june um available on spotify and apple music it's just called don't stop it's basically a remix of don't stop the Fleetwood Mac song. Um, Please stop the Fleetwood Mac Well, what's, what's really interesting, or not really interesting, but even more cringeworthy, I suppose, than this guy having this as a hobby, um, he's used it as a way to win business for Goldman Sachs. So Business Insider suggests that he used it as a way to win the Spotify IPO and has spoken about it publicly on many occasions. Mm. He has over 425,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. To, to that one song, that's amazing, isn't it, really? Well, I think that's just him. Yeah. I mean... Well. I, well, yeah. that, but he's only done that one song. Oh, so, oh God! Yeah, yeah so, okay, sorry. Yeah. So it's that one song is getting four hundred twenty-five thousand monthly listeners because, and it's basically just a rehash of the Fleetwood Mac song. So, is anybody an EDM fan? I like dance. <laughs> just like, I like no. dance and rave music, but EDM is a, an American construct, and has got nothing to do with the beautiful, wonderful source of dance music in this country. I, I have to say, I, I didn't. I believe know, you. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't know what EDM was. I thought it was. 
sort of maybe a disease of some description. If I'm well, it kind of is. But I, I did leave it playing on the office before we came down to record the show, so uh, I'm sure everybody's enjoying it anyway. Okay, so this was not the only music industry one. This is uh, on. Uh, so this is Big Sean's Big Bank song came out. So this is on Big. Coin Exchange Guide. So this is Big Sean raps about cryptocurrency in the latest song called Big Bank. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to be reading out these lyrics. Because, oh, please do, man. No, just, 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 just a sample. I'm not sure I can do that. But, um, but basically, the you know, hip hop has actually been a pretty interesting sort of uh, tap into what's happening on the streets for for you know decades now in terms of where it is. So if cryptocurrency and and specifically bizarre crypto coins are being called out in uh, in, in hip hop, then it may have finally have kind of really have reached kind of uh, the the streets as it were. So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure necessarily that um, whatever the hell three coins is that I'll be kind of going and uh, going investing in this thing anyway. Well, that's my biggest problem. With three, which three coins? I mean, three coins will pay your whole. Se- <laughs> well, I'm going to say this in my very English accent. Three point three coins will pay your whole semester. Um, it doesn't refer to which one. So how are we supposed to know? Well, I think I think crypto three coins is actually three coins is actually a type of cryptocurrency. Oh, I see. Oh, so well, it's the I'm name very, of the cryptocurrency. What was, what was Dennis Rodman doing? I don't think he's, he's a basketball player, not a kind of hip-hop guy, but I think he wants to be. What was his thing with, like, North Korea? He was plugging his cryptocurrency in front of... Well, so he's got a um, weed coin or something. <laughs> weed coin. Yeah, yeah, which is a cryptocurrency to aid the facilitation of the purchase of... Um, of alleged medical uh, marijuana said, in yes. blah blah blah, um, but yeah, like by all means, go check out Big Sean's new song. That should be quite an entertaining end to this. If you, one, th- if you think that's peak coin, um, my kind of peak coin of, of that is that I met Ghostface Killer of the Wu Tang Clan, Very nice. one of your heroes, as I remember, David, and I managed to pierce his retinue, if you know what I mean, uh, his his his, uh, his gang and all that stuff, and I had a chat with him about uh, crypto. And he'd just been on stage with Prince Constantine of the Dutch royal family. <laughs> the Prince about Andrew crypto. of the Dutch royal family. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, who, who we've had on the podcast yes, before. Yeah, yeah. Prince yeah. Constantine. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. actually all right, you know. Mm, smart but, but But just to put that into peakness, after seeing Ghostface and chatting to him and you know getting all types of weird messages from his manager, etc., um, went to Money 2020, Prince Constantine was on the barge. Right, and it's a bit like Can in the day with yachts. So it's a barge, and on the barge was Prince Constantine, a bald eagle, a natural, absolute bald eagle, and a white fucking owl <laughs> on the prow of the barge going through Amsterdam. And then I realised that we'd hit, we'd hit peak crypto. Very nice. And on that note, um, we will wrap up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Do you have a website or a Twitter handle, perhaps? Monty, how about you? I have a really badly run website uh, blog called MOB Letters, numeral 76mob76outlook.com, based on my graffiti many years <laughs> ago. Brentford, Monty of Brentford FC in 1975. Uh, Monty Mumford on Twitter. Perfect. And Jose? I typically would channel through things via Onfido, so at O-N-F-I-D-O. Perfect. And David? What are you going to give us this week? We've had Instagram, we've had Twitter. Uh, yeah, we'll just go for email this week. Uh, David at 11fs.com. Perfect. And as for me, I'm on at Sarah Kashansky on Twitter. As always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcasts at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. 
don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on iTunes they help us so so much thank you so much for listening goodbye goodbye